Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening for me in Los Angeles. This is happening for you, wherever you are. Uh, thanks for being here. It's good to be with you. My name is Brad Listy, and I am sitting here uh, in a chair in the entertainment capital of the world. Uh, I continue to get feedback about episode 201, my conversation with Gregory Sherl. I addressed this on uh, Sunday in episode 202. Max Millwood, who many of you know as the podcast's most dedicated and vociferous critic, uh, is furious with me about all of this. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Max sends me an email, a lengthy email, after every episode with a full critique. And I got an email from him yesterday that can safely be categorized as scathing. The subject heading read, I'm pissed at you, Brad, <laughs> which I immediately took as a bad sign. Uh, and then Max uh, went on to write, dear Brad, you've made me angry with how shittily you handled the episode two, uh, 201 feedback 
In the year that I've been listening to you, I've never had such a visceral reaction to your show. So you're just a surrogate? Uh, and here I should interject. In monologue, in the monologue for episode 201, I was talking about uh, this show and my perception of what I do. And I described my main job, uh, at least insofar as the interview portion is concerned, as being a surrogate for my listeners, trying to listen well and uh, ask questions that I think my audience would be interested in hearing the answers to. So back to Max's email. Uh, he says, so you're just a surrogate. Anything is good by you so long as it's, quote, interesting and authentic. Well, that leaves very little room for failure, doesn't it? Unless you're talking about statistical theory with a salesperson, then the podcast will go just fine, huh? Or just fine, huh? <laughs> uh, we also learned that your, quote, literary podcast doesn't necessarily have to be literary all the time. Why? Because according to you, there's only so much to say about writing. Despite that statement showing a gross misunderstanding of your art form and a dullness as a host, it does betray your pact with the audience. Regarding Gregory Sherl, I would have loved to hear you talk about post-confessionalism and what Sherl thought about the moniker of, quote, post-confessionalist, but you were too busy digging your gloveless hands into his mental suffering because it was, quote, interesting and authentic. Some surrogate. Okay, so I'm going to stop here for a second. Uh, when I hung up the phone, uh, and this is the truth, when I got off the call with Gregory Sherl after that conversation, I thought to myself, uh, he's one of the best guests that I've had in recent memory. I had so much fun talking with him. He's a really sweet guy, and uh, he's unusually candid, despite the fact that he's been through a lot, which I think shows strength of character uh, and uh, generosity. And, you know, like a, like a minute or two into the conversation, uh, you know, amid the natural flow of things, he started talking to me about how he OD'd intentionally. And, yeah, that caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting it. And so the conversation just sort of spun off in that direction from there. And I followed that uh, path. And, uh, yeah, I mean, had I, had I done better research, it might not have caught me off guard as much as it did had I done better reading, etc. cetera. Uh, but at the same time, I think that the fact that it was news to me lent the conversation an interesting air and some spontaneity. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of listeners were unaware of this stuff as well. So that's what I kind of mean by surrogate, at least to some extent. And I think that a conversation about mental illness is totally germane to the writing life. I mean, they go hand in hand. <laughs> Plenty of writers out there deal with this stuff one way or the other, whether it's OCD or depression or bipolar disorder, uh, whatever it is. Uh, plenty of writers, maybe even the majority or the vast majority of writers have coped with this at one point or another or know someone who has in the writing community. And uh, I hope that, uh, you know, hearing an honest conversation about it was helpful and, po you know, possibly brought some form of relief, which was certainly the case with me. Talking to Gregory, who was so uh, open and generous in sharing his experience 
you know, that sort of thing is what uh, podcasting is about for me or what it's largely about. So uh, let me keep reading. Max continues by saying, uh, and then for you to have this fucking tone, you were fed up with having to keep explaining to your audience what the show's format was. So you were going to tell us for the last time. You ever think, Brad, that if you have to explain your show's format over and over again, then maybe there's something wrong with your show's format? Are you going to include a little pamphlet of your show's mission statement for every new listener who indubitably came to your show's site because they thought it was going to be about writing? Ha! And you want us to recommend this show to, wait for it, other people? How come it's either or with you, Brad? How come the show has to be about either the author or the author's book? No one is suggesting you turn your show into a book club. All we're suggesting is that you center your show around where the author meets the book. It's not a hard concept. And uh, I hear that. I definitely hear that. And you know what? I think I do that most of the time in most of these conversations. Uh, but I am open to the program taking unexpected turns. I'm open to certain episodes not following that particular format. And what I tell my guests uh, prior to going on the air most of the time is that I'm, you know, I'm, I always try to make a point that, I, that what I'm doing here is uh, trying to have conversations more than I am trying to conduct uh, an interview in some sort of formal or journalistic sense. Yes, I drive the thing. Yes, it's my show. Yes, I'm performing in the role of a broadcaster to a certain extent. And by virtue of that, I'm going to be doing most of the asking. But uh, for me, when the show is at its best, uh, it should feel for the listener like eavesdropping, if that makes sense. You're listening in on a conversation, two people talking, rather than like a journalistic interviewer person, inter you know, asking questions, one by one, and the person at the other end answering them. So Max continues, uh, if you want this show to be energetically profitable, if not financially so, you're going to have to change your ways as a host. What future guest is going to want to waste an hour with you if he or she is not going to get his or her book promoted? Okay, so I, I got to interject again. Here I have to take issue. I plug authors' uh, books in every single episode. I always have. I introduce the author by plugging the book and the publisher, and I close the show by repeating that information and then plugging the author's website and social media. I always do that. And part of the reason why I do it in the open and in the close is because I don't want the conversation itself to feel uh, rote or overly traditional or like a repetition of what the author has already said in other venues, whether it's on the radio or on other podcasts or in various literary blogs, in interviews there. I don't want it to feel like someone's shilling for a product. And I'm just sitting there asking normal questions so that they can give me uh, what, you know, the answers that become kind of canned after a while. Like when you've been on a media tour for a book, a lot of the questions can seem similar. I'm trying to avoid that. Because that's boring for me. And I'm sure it's boring for the author after a while. At least I think it is. So uh, Max concludes, you need to rethink some things, Brad, just like I need to rethink whether I should continue devoting so much time to a show that seems to be so misguided 
Signed, Max Millwood. Oh, there's my dog. So, uh, I don't know what to say. The Gregory Sherl episode was unconventional by some standards. I understand that. Max didn't like that, uh, you know, aspect of it, or he didn't like it at all. Uh, I understand that as well. But I have to add, a lot of people really did like it. And I know that because they keep telling me via email and Twitter and Facebook. It's one of those episodes that generated really passionate feedback, both positive and negative. And, uh, you know, frankly, I take that as a good sign. It's not that I don't hear the criticism uh, or even agree with some of it, but uh, my point is that I tend to feel good when there's a polarized response. I tend to trust that. And I tend to mistrust uniform praise, uh, and I tend to mistrust uniform condemnation. Actually, if there's uniform condemnation, I tend to agree with it and feel horrible about myself. But, you know... That's just my tendency. I like the idea that there's been a polarized response. I feel like that says something positive somehow. So there you have it. Max Millwood. Uh, I hope this clarifies some things and I hope that I haven't inadvertently angered uh, people even further. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can within a limited time frame to produce uh, two programs a week, which are, you know, made available for free. And I take a lot of pride in it. I'm trying to make a good show. And I'm trying to make the kind of show that I would want to listen to. And, you know, maybe maybe I have unusual taste. It's happened before. Do you read me? Can you hear me now? Uh, one small reminder before we get going. Voicemail. I mentioned this as well in episode 202. Uh, you guys can now leave me voicemail messages if uh, you, the listener out there somewhere, have something to say to me and you would like to submit a voicemail message. It's really easy. All you have to do is go to the show's website at otherpeoplepod.com. There's a tab over on the right that says uh, send voicemail. You click that tab and from there it should be self-explanatory. All you need is an internet connection and a computer uh, with a built-in microphone or an external microphone. And uh, that's how you can leave me voice messages anonymously, if you wish. So if you want to do that, uh, I'd appreciate hearing from you, even if you are furious with me. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. 
My guest today is Peter Orner. It's great to have him here on the show. He is a uh, writer of enormous talent who has been doing really good work for a lot of years. His latest story collection, Last Car Over the Sagamore Bridge, is now available from Little Brown. I think you're going to like this conversation, so let's get to it. Here he is, folks. This is Peter Orner, and his new collection once again is called Last Car Over the Sagamore Bridge. I am uh, in my office at San Francisco State University, which is uh, off 19th on the southern tip of San Francisco. That seems like a great place to, I mean, like, you know, doing the, the, the college teaching thing, being in San Francisco, like, that's a pretty sweet gig, right? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. I've been here about 10 years, and uh, I can't complain at all. I teach two days a week, and uh, my students are great. And I used to have out my window, and we may be able to hear it at some point, but the um, San Francisco police uh, firing range is within <laughs> within hearing distance of us, so I get to listen to um, our protectors. God, I feel I feel I almost yeah. feel like you just one upped me. Like I'm in Los Angeles, and like <laughs> there's police helicopters on this show all the time because they buzz. <laughs> right. But if we hear actual gunfire, I'm going to feel... Right, you might hear some gunfire. And, like, they do bomb stuff. I mean, it's crazy, some crazy shit, seriously. Oh, okay. Good. Well, that's nice to hear. And then uh, you so, said you've been in San Francisco for 10 years, but uh, Chicago is the home turf. Uh, yes. I grew up in Chicago. Yeah. Like like birth to college? Uh, birth to college. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and birth to college and, you know, after college. Um, always, I'm always in and out of Chicago. But I've lived here for, I don't know, 12 years. Does it feel like home? I mean, like, you know, because I, I moved around a, a, a bit, and I, I don't necessarily, I guess Los Angeles is now my home. I've lived here longer than I've ever lived anywhere. Uh, but, like, you know, you, I think when you have your entire childhood in one geographical location, maybe that's where you feel your roots, and, and, and especially if your family is still there. Like, is that where you call home, even though you've lived in, or in San Francisco for a decade? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think our, like, my imaginative roots, my, all my memories um, are Chicago based. So if I want to reach for anything, it's usually set there, but it's weird. And you know, this from, you know, adopting a city, you start to, like I resisted San Francisco for years and, and, um, continue to, but I'm now just starting to feel, you know, like I live here, you know? So, um, but it's taken me a long time. I rarely write about San Francisco, um, but I have recently. So it's coming. Yeah, I mean, it's like that it's old coming. thing. It's, it's yeah. that old thing where, like, you know, James Joyce wrote about Ireland from Paris, and we always kind of, like, sometimes I think you need that critical distance geographically in order to see a place or in order for it to, like, rise up in your imagination to the level of myth. Yeah, I totally, I mean, I think that's exactly it, and myth is the key. And, <laughs> and you don't, and you don't, like, okay, so, like, this is the thing, though, is that, like, if 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 Chicago... Um, rules your imagination and you have such a strong tie there like do you have any desire to one day move back there or you or, or is it like impossible to go back for you for years I thought I would never go back and I think now I'm starting to feel like it would be wonderful to live there again but because it I think it would be a, a new place for me and no longer a myth you know and then I would re-experience it but I think for a long time I wanted to hold on to whatever it was, the hold that I had I wanted to hold on to. But now I feel like, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. And uh, in some ways it's a lot more exciting for me than San Francisco politically. Yeah. You know, it's a real, it's 
a real city. Well, yeah, I <laughs> no mean, offense, she, no, no offense, San Franciscans. My sister lives there, and uh, she just got married this past spring, so I spent like a long weekend. It was like the first good spring weekend. Oh yeah, uh, it's, yeah. Which, is, which is always like glory. I live. I mean, I grew up in Milwaukee in Indianapolis, so I know that part oh, of it. Grew up in Milwaukee. Wow. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in that region, and I, you know, growing up, I would go to Chicago and see the museums and whatever. But uh, you know, in the Midwest, after like the long gray winter, like that first, those first green shoots and that first like sixty-five degree day is pretty glorious. And the, the, like the soggy, the soggy ground, you know, with the dirty snow. I mean, I just it totally, you know, we don't get that anymore. I, I, I mourn that. And you know, it's so good to hear you from Wisconsin. I always trust people from Wisconsin. I see. I think I, I don't mean, know why. No, no, I'm, I'm the same way. Like I, you know, I mar- I married a woman from, uh, uh, from Minnesota. You know, like I don't think yeah. that's a total accident, but I think like, <laughs> right. I call, you know, the, the, those northern states, like the, I think there's good people from. From way up north, I, I always tend to get along with like Michigan, uh, yeah. Northern Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota. You know, there's something about it. Even the, the Dakotas. You know, there's something yeah. I, I really relate to about people from those from those states. I don't really believe in like nationalistic kinsmanship kind of things, but when it comes to the Midwest, I totally, you know, I feel almost nationalistic. I feel like, you know, we kind of do hail from this place that is a little bit different, especially like, you know, you're coming from these really interesting cities that are often overshadowed by Chicago, you know, Milwaukee, Indianapolis. I'm totally fascinated by Milwaukee, especially. It's the one I know more because I'm actually from the northern part of the Chicago suburbs. And so we actually would go to Milwaukee a lot. Um, It's this kind of um, almost treat. You know, we go to the zoo, but also we go around, drive around the neighborhoods. Milwaukee's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's got like this, like, I mean, it's got a real ethnic identity, like the Germanic culture. And yeah. I don't know, I have really fond memories of it. Uh, it was the first part of my childhood before I hit adolescence and started to like, you know, get an attitude. So I just, I, I, rem- I, re- I remember it as like this idol. But, um, yeah. you know, I was thinking like with regard to like regional, uh, like this trust that I have with people of a certain region and like how I relate to people in a place like just this morning I was walking around and I think this is probably a thought that I have on a recurring basis, but you know, Los, there's no end of, uh, assessments of Los Angeles where the, uh, the surface, uh, what's the, what's the word on the superficiality uh, of Los Angeles is, is very well documented. And just this morning I was thinking about people and like, you know, raising my kid and, um, you know, uh, I don't know like how much, I feel like people are really, really nice in Los Angeles, but only in like a, a very, um, uh, you know, out, outer level. I'm so law- at a loss for words for how to put this, but just you know, it's very surface level. And then there's really nothing much else that develops. Like it's it's a hard place to make friends. And what I wonder is that is that a function of place or is that a function of age? Like to where I've, I, you know, or is that a function of me just not doing a good enough job of getting to know people? <laughs> like maybe I'm the you know, I mean, I go through this a lot. Like, is it me? You know, is it, why, you know, why haven't I made new friends in, in, in my late thirties? You know what I mean? And, uh, and that's weird. I mean, maybe we just hit a point where, you know, it's just harder and harder. And I, so I think age plays a part, but I also feel like place and your, your relationship to a place, uh, can totally impact sort of how much you, how deep you go. I mean, I find when I go to Los Angeles, my brother lives there for many years. I'm like fascinated by it. I mean, just the the the, the kind of easygoingness of it. You know, everyone's. I don't know. It's just I I find that it 
LA is like no place. And I feel like I can see how it would be endless to explore. And my brother would take me around, like show me, you know, on walks. He liked to walk Los Angeles, which I know is, you know, you're not supposed to do, right? But, no, see, I, I ride a bike. It's a really great walking city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so, love it. Yeah, and it's just, I, I, I was just so struck by it. And, 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 like, geographically, I was just there recently, and I was actually looking at a map and trying to really kind of learn it a little bit, like, figure it out. And, man, is it complicated. Yeah, I've, I've lived here for, t- like, almost, what, 11 and a half years, I think, something like that. And I, uh, I feel like I've just scratched the surface. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's bottomless, you know. But um, to get back to you and your yeah. youth in Chicago, you said northern suburbs – um, artistic family? Like, how did you come up as a writer? And, like, how did you... I mean, is this something you knew from the, the cradle, or is it something that, that struck you later? I, I think, you know, early on, it was the only thing I could do. It was the only thing I had confidence about, you know, like in sixth grade, seventh grade. I'd write little skits and things like that. So it was the only thing that... I love sports a lot. It just wasn't any good. And uh, I think when it came to telling stories, making up stuff, that was when I kind of was praised and recognized. And I think I, I you know, it was a nice thing, <laughs> you know, because I, you know, my my house wasn't the happiest. And uh, I think part of the, part of it was a bit of an escape, I guess, you know, but, but also it, like... What was it like, just parents, did your parents split up or... Yeah, my parents split up when I was in seventh grade, which is, you know, a tough, you know, you got kids, you know how hard that, I mean... I've got a three-year-old. She's not at that age. But I think that at seventh grade, I think, is an especially hard time in general, right? Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. trying to figure. And so, you know, and I wasn't, it wasn't as if I was um, uh, uh, particularly upset by the, you know, what happened, because I think it was for the best. You know, I think in a lot of cases, most cases, that's probably the case. So, you know, it was a good thing that my parents split up. But but just in general, I think um, I think I sort of was drawn, you know, towards a, a, a my you know, maybe an inwardness that came out through making up stories, and so I think I always sort of um, uh, there's somebody coming in who I don't even know. <laughs> they could knock. Um, it's the first day of class, uh, but uh, yeah. So I think, and my family, my mother's a big reader, my father's a big reader. Um, and, uh, what do they do? They I mean, do you have like a, like lawyers or I don't know. I, I find... uh, yeah. My dad, I come from a family, like literally like, four generations of lawyers in Chicago. Okay. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, well actually I'm, yeah, three, uh, cause we didn't, we don't, we don't stretch that far back in Chicago, but, um, for that you have to go to Poland or wherever <laughs> the hell we're from. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I just, you know, they were literate, you know, they weren't literary, you know? So, um, and my mother, uh, used to run the Illinois Arts Council, which is a state agency, you know, kind of comparable to the NEA. So, um, you know, arts were very much a, a part of our lives, but not the practice of them, you know, but I think certainly being around that made me, uh, more inclined. Well, but just, again, it was really the only thing I could do. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear like, like all of that, because I think you have, you know, you start with like a natural proclivity. And I think that has to be there where, you know, you have a facility for language. It comes easily to you. You like books, you know, all of that stuff. But then uh, I've talked to so many writers and, you know, it's not always the case, but it's often the case that there is some event in their childhood, whatever it might be, that drove them inward or that was like a very challenging, you know, and um, it's a common thing, you know, and I, it's like, it's a formative thing. And 
you know, I look back as like I moved in sixth grade, sixth and seventh grade were a bitch for me. And I have a three-year-old. So like we're living parallel lives. Daughter. She, she turned today is her, today is her birthday. I took her out for uh, pancakes this oh, morning. Wow. Yeah. Oh, nice. nice. What's her name? Uh, her name's Evan, and we've been we've been celebrating for I don't know if you did this. But it's, it's been like a th- <laughs> right. it's like a three week process. I was like, oh my god! Like if I, I totally yeah. No, she sings happy birthday to herself. Her birthday's not for like months and months. You know, it's it's a year long thing. Well, see the thing, yeah, and this is it. Like I was like, you know, because uh, like w- when she was younger, I was like, honey, we're not going to do the birthday parties. Like I'm not making other adults go through this. Like where yeah. you've got to stand around like drinking like white wine from a plastic cup, like making small right. talk with somebody you don't know, and like. Right. Um, but then like they start to get old enough to get excited about it, and you just cannot say no to their excitement. Yeah, no, she there's, was, no, there's yeah. no way. Yeah, it's just. We've been talking about the green cupcakes. I know, and we could go down this road the whole, the whole, <laughs> the whole time. But they're, these they're, green they're, cupcakes, she's obsessed with. Yeah. You know? Anyway, there are people out there just loading their weapons. I can. Hear, yes, I know I it. I know it. We're loose. We just lost, you know, everybody. And I hate it. I never. I vowed never to be one of those people. You know, yeah. and here we are. So well, anyway. So but, uh, sorry, I got you off track. No, it's all right. That's what this show is about. And. um with regard to, you know, getting to the point where you started to take it seriously, like, you know, I, am assuming like in high school, you know, the, you still had the, the tendencies, but I feel like maybe, uh, well, I don't know. You can tell me, I'm, I'm guessing that you weren't like writing novels in high school or were you? No, I, I was, I was, I was like a high school journalist, you know, I would like, I was an intrepid reporter. I, I broke a big story in our town I'm still proud of. Um, Did you really? Hot dog stand. Yeah, yeah. We had a we had a uh, a hot dog place. We had two hot dog places in town. So you were either a Stasha's person or you were either a Nathan's person. And and Nathan's was kind of like kind of the up and coming, a little more nouveau riche sort of place, you know. And so like my family was very against Nathan's. Anyway, when I was I was a high school reporter. It turned out that Nathan's Famous in New York got upset because they heard about this place, which was getting a little popular, and they challenged the name in court because I guess the name was copyrighted because you couldn't sell hot dogs under the name Nathan's. Anyway, it's a major story, as you can imagine, uh, but I broke it. I broke the story. I'm still proud of it. <laughs> they had to change the name to Michael's, and that was the end of the, that's the very end of the story. Okay, but, okay, but here again, like I, yeah. and this is another thing that, that I think is a common through line or like a common detail in the life of writers is that, um, a, they're driven inward by some event. And then B people tell them, uh, and often repeatedly that they're good at this, or they have significant successes that, you know, uh, in retrospect, aren't like that significant, but they're significant to you. Like I distinctly remember lots of adults in my life being like, you're a really good writer. And right. you, you remember that shit when you grow up, <laughs> you know, like it was important oh. to me, you know? Yeah, you know, and it, it, it makes a difference. And, you know, and, and I, you know, I like to think like this is so innate and, you know, you don't need, you know, even though I teach writing, I, I often tell my classes and my students, you know, I don't teach this stuff at all. And so don't even go there. You know what I mean? Like this is all something that comes from another direction other than someone telling you something. You know, it has to come from somewhere else. Um, and we can talk about those places. But I think that, I think that, you know, encouraging people, especially you know, at an early, you know, young age, you know, makes every difference in the world, whether or not you become a writer or not. Frankly, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's like you know, you need. I think you need 
more than maybe you want, you're willing to admit, especially as you're an adolescent, you need adults in your life who can see you and like can, can tell yeah. you what you're good at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Annie Mitnick was her name. I still see her sometimes when I'm in Chicago, you know, and we, I remember we did, um, it was, remember the, do you remember the who concert where the people got trampled? I don't know what year that was. I don't know. But, I, that might have been a little. I don't know how old you are, but that, yeah, I, I think maybe it's been a little. Yeah, I think it was. I don't know where. I, I mean, I was literally like, I think in third grade or something. I mean, something absurd. But it was in the big news at the time. These people got trampled at the Who concert. I think it was in Pennsylvania or something. Okay. And then we were asked to do a skit, and I performed a skit <laughs> based on this, like getting trampled at the Who concert, and instead of being horrified. Uh, Penny Mitnick was kind of impressed. <laughs> like, I mean, she probably should have been horrified, but because I was acting out getting squashed, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, I always like the, and that was when she said, oh, you're creative. You know, I said, well, you know, and so, I mean, I think I just got lucky with her, you know, because, I mean, that, and I still remember it to this day, you know, it's something that was like, wow, I can, I can, like, kind of go towards certain lines that maybe, you know, other people wouldn't be very happy with well i was gonna say thank god she had a sense of humor you know <laughs> like, yeah i mean that was the thing like you can imagine now like oh that's funny but you know i can also imagine what teachers now might you know, oh you can't talk about that i don't know you know what i mean yeah no i had it was disturbing I, I, like eyeballs were gushing and all kinds of stuff you know? well, yeah i remember i was in seventh grade like we're, we're getting we're getting off on like a nostalgia trip now but like i was <laughs> i was in good. seventh grade english and my teacher was mrs uh, miss goodyear and we had to do a um I guess a parody. I think that was the lesson. We had to take an existing piece of literature and then parody it. And so I did uh, The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. You know that poem? Nice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, was it Coleridge? I forget who wrote it or Longfellow. Huh. But The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, huh. I, I, I did the uh, – I, I, I transferred it to The Midnight Ride of Pete Rozelle, who was the commissioner of the NFL. Right, of course, Pete Rozelle, yeah. And he, he was, like, riding around on a horse, and all the, all the players were on steroids. And, like, I, I was ahead of the curve on steroids, by the that's way. That's hilarious. Why, why Pete Rozelle? I mean, that's, like, the only time he's ever been memorialized in any piece of art. I have yeah. no idea, but I was, good at, I was good at rhyming. And, like, I did, like, a, you know, I did a fairly, you know, decent, I guess, a parody of the poem from, a, like, you know, a rhyme and meter standpoint. My teachers just loved it, like, pulled me aside, and I'll never forget <laughs> Midnight Ride of Pete Rozelle. I mean, that's like, you know, like, I don't know. I remember his hair. He had good hair. Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I still had it. I wish I still had it somewhere. My, maybe, maybe my mother has it, like, buried in a filing cabinet. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, so anyway, where did you go to college? Uh, I went to college at University of Michigan. Like so many people from my high school, it was sort of like a cavalcade. I couldn't, I wanted to go someplace else, and I kept netting, not getting in anywhere. Not that Michigan isn't a great place, but I had to, like, sneak in through the, you know, there were all these back doors then, so I, like, went to summer school. So I like, graduated high school and then immediately went to college, which um, which was, you know, intense. And yeah. uh, But I didn't, you know, I didn't have much of an experience there in some ways. I didn't study. I didn't do my, you know, I hung out, and it was great, but... I feel like I still. I feel like I'd like to go to college again. Me too. You know, a lot of people, you know? I mean, I would love because like people talk about the University of Michigan English department. I was an English major. I can't tell you one thing. No. I can't tell you one teacher. 
You know, so uh, what, I, what, I was doing. what I say over and over again is that I was a prime candidate for a gap year. Like I had, I had, I been yes. able to take a gap year where I had to work. Like it couldn't, right. have, it couldn't have just been like, right. you know, take your backpack and go like ride around Europe. Cause I just would have ended right. up doing the same thing that I did in my freshman year of college. But right. um, just go, right. go work some shit job, even if it was overseas, but work, I, 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 I think yeah. I would have benefited from that and gotten some some of it out of my system. I was just so sick of being a student and I just wanted to not be in school when I was in college. And it's just, you know, so many, so many wasted opportunities from an, a learning perspective and just, yeah, you know, but yeah. hindsight's 2020. That's <laughs> why we get it. You know, and I mean, I think I've always looked for gap years ever since. Right. You know what I mean? I'm always sort of trying to find them and do them as much as I can. I never, yeah. So in a way that it's just good to acknowledge that, we need that, but God knows then how how we have any idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and what like just, I didn't get a chance to ask you, but you said northern yeah. Chicago. So, what part of was this like John Hughes turf? Like, where were you? Where did you grow yeah, up? Yeah, yeah, not not far. My, I, you know, I claim I lived in Chicago after college, so I have some, you know, in strong ties in my family has deep roots in Rogers Park, where I regret we that I'm not from, but I always feel like it was like ripped away from me. And it's, and it's almost like my, one of my themes and one of my work is that why, you know, why did we move to the, the suburbs and why did my parents ruin my life? But I grew up in Highland Park, which is a beautiful suburb on the lake. It's just kind of a, you know, in some ways it's a horrible place to, to grow up. And in some ways it's incredibly idyllic place. I mean, I lived right on the lake and we I grew up in the ravine along the lake. And so, but, you know, the attitudes of the town were not great. You know, it was wealthy and people were really competitive and intense. And, you know, the high school was very intense. Um, so, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. But now, you know, a great deal of affection for especially the landscape. Because the landscape of um, Highland Park and other towns nearby, are, it's bluffs along the lake. So it's really striking. And I think it's kind of unusual. You know, you have, I think you have bluffs in Milwaukee along the lake, too. Sure. Um, some of those. And so, you know, you kind of, and it is a fairly unique landscape to, you know, to the Midwest, certainly. And I don't know. I don't know about other places that I, we had a bluff at the end of our block. And that's where I spent, like, much of our, you know, my parents would fight. And so my brother and I would go down and sit by the bluff in the, at night and listen to the lake. And I was like, you know, probably the most formative experience of our relationship and also my life. You know? Yeah, it's so crazy. So, like, I, I put a lot of scenes in that bluff you know sure well sure and like it's funny too to hear you talk about like uh nature uh even though you were you know i mean i guess you're a suburban chicago but you grew up near one of the biggest cities in the country and yeah uh, i just i i have this a similar thing and i think this is maybe just a uh, like a, a a function of childhood you know where you're maybe you're awed by the natural world or connected to it in a way that can sometimes uh, evade you later in life. But I, I just, I mean, the, the woods and the Creek and like all this stuff that I grew up yeah. around, it's like really, really sticky, sticky stuff. Yeah. And like, and like Michigan, you know what I mean? I mean, it is like a, a very intense thing to me and you grew up on it too. You know, it's this, you know, I, uh, it's hard to even explain how, like I, Sometimes just that's my touchstone, you know, is the, is the lake and, you know, it's it's in the seasons on the on the beach. And, you know, I, I, that's sort of my, yeah. And so, yeah, we were, I mean, I think maybe suburban kids have maybe different experiences now, you know, but we were free and we were free on the, that bluff and, and, the, and those ravines. And, you know, it was actually, 
It was wonderful. What about, why am I criticizing Highland Park? But anyway, no. <laughs> well, no, you know, I, I went back to my old hometown in Indiana last summer and happened to, again, happened to catch it on like a really beautiful weekend. Yeah. And I got on a bike. Uh, I, my sister still lives back there. So I got on a bike at her house and just rode for like hours, you know, past, wow. past wow. every old place that I used to ride my bike, you know. <laughs> nice. And it was, and it, and, and it's grown up so much. So there's, and, and so many different things have changed. Like not only are like the trees and, you know, bigger and, you know, so certain neighborhoods look a lot more dated than they used to, but, uh, it was also really beautiful. And like, I used to think it was the ugliest place in the world and, you know, maybe in the middle of January it is, but, <laughs> right, right. Know, like, there's something about going back there. I was like, God, this wasn't so bad. You know, it's a really right. beautiful place. So. Right, and there's a reason we left, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's yeah. a reason we think about it, and I don't know. You know, it would have been, we'd have a definitely a different view if we just stayed, you know? And right. I, I mean, I've when I go home, and I don't know if you experience this, you know, I sit in the bar with my friends, you know, in Chicago or outside of Chicago, and, you know, I can feel sometimes that they maybe should have strayed a little bit sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean, so many in Indianapolis, so many of my friends, like none of my closest friends stayed that I can yeah. think of. I mean, like there's a few people that still live back there. I mean, there's actually a lot, but it's like when I go back, I don't know who to pick up the phone and call. You know what I'm saying? Like my, right. my core group of friends, everybody's scattered. Right. Uh, right. You know, Chicago, I think has a little bit, I mean, that's probably a lot stronger pull. There's a lot more to stay for, you know? Yeah. It's our, you know, our, I mean, we really consider it the center of the universe, even when we leave, you know, it still is the, and that this idea of like we resent other people that don't see that, <laughs> you know, like how can you not think Chicago is the center of the universe, you know, and like, you know, because it it's this, and and especially when you you know you could see it from the beach, you know, rising, it's like this city on the hill, you know, and um, so my relationship with it was like it was like this magnet, which is I think why I write about it so much because I feel like it's it it remains this as you said earlier, you know, a myth in our minds. So I didn't just have the myth of where I grew up literally, but I had the myth of where I always wanted to be and certainly where my where my mother in particular always wanted to be. She always wanted to be in the city. Mm. And so I would you know, we would always go, you know, it was just a constant, you know, so we lived in two places almost. Wow. So, okay, let's t let's get you out of college or at least sure. out of undergrad and like I'm yeah. imagining that you started to get more serious about writing early 20s or Yeah, I, um probably the biggest thing is I went to I went to Namibia in southern Africa um in uh 1990 1992, I think, after I graduated. Um and I was teaching English there. And that was like the biggest thing. I was all alone in a desert at a school in the middle of nowhere. What? What? I mean, how did that happen? Nowhere. Um, how did it happen? I uh, Namibia. It's a long, complicated history, but it became independent very late in uh, in uh, you know the history of African liberation movement. So in 1990, it became independent. There's been a couple of since since um, that have become independent, but it's a fairly new country um and they declared the official language english because they thought it would sort of be good for the economy good for people to you know bring people together and they were also consciously going against afrikaans which they considered at the time it could be kind of the language of the oppressor sort of thing sure um but everyone spoke it and they didn't speak english so it was weird to go to a place where you were almost consciously trying to get people 
you know, they sp- people spoke their mother tongues and often another um, uh, other language, uh, a- another African language, um, indigenous African language. But they also spoke Afrikaans as sort of the lingua franca of the area that I was in. And so we, I was trying to change that to English, which is kind of weird. Like, take, take one language of the oppressor for the other. You know what I mean? Um, but that's, you know, slightly off the track. But anyway, so I was there um, just at the dawn of this country's independence, which was really exciting. and um, always wonderful. It's always a good time to be yeah. in a country when it's like... Yeah, it was... So positive, you know, like they were. I remember reading the newspaper, like they were like voting on the national anthem, you know, like, you know, so I would be bringing to my class of seventh graders, you know, like, what do you think of this tune? What do you think of this tune? <laughs> you know, and it was, it was wild. And I taught history, and in, in the history books had not yet been written. Like, so I literally had to go and talk to my Namibian colleagues and friends and tell, have them teach me the history from their point of view. And that's what I walked in and taught. And it was, you know, incredible. How did you incredible. get there? What, what, I mean, was this Peace Corps? What was this? Um, something called World Teach. It's kind of like, um, I think it's out of Harvard. I was, you know, they run it. Um, and it's kind of like the Peace Corps, but it just doesn't have a government sponsorship. Right. Okay. Um, and you get to choose where you want to go. And I really wanted to go to South Africa. I was been fascinated in college. One of my beats in college was covering the anti-apartheid movement. So I got very interested in South Africa, and Namibia was basically a colony of South Africa. But in 1992, I mean 1990, when it became independent, it um, it actually became free before South Africa did. And so um, I went there instead of South Africa. But it's kind of like you know you're going to like you know, wanting to go to Manhattan and ending up in Nebraska. You know, it's just <laughs> incredibly, incredibly different place. You know. Yeah. But um, but under the influence of of apartheid. So the, these kids had lived under apartheid schooling, you know, the year before. And then they're, you know, and so it was weird also to be like, you know, this guy from America, you know what I mean? So I kind of had to, you know, I, I learned very quickly and you were, and it goes back to that gap year thing. Like I really learned on my feet how to, how to live in a place that, you know, didn't quite know what to make of me. I mean, it was a, it was a cute, and I could go on and on and on and I won't, I'll spare you, but it was a, like the, probably the most important thing I ever did. And I'm, still grateful and i go back as much as i can and we're novel about it and all that so well sure yeah i mean a big part of my life so and like i mean as a young man uh, like those years especially like you're kind of longing for a big experience and this was certainly this was certainly a big experience and you know that did it coincide with kind of like the flowering of your uh uh, ambition like were you thinking like there's a book in this as you were there or did that only occur to you after the fact i think I'll answer the second one first. I, I, the book came after and took me 12 years because I was, I, I literally think I was mourning not being there. I, I was mourning coming home. I, I, I missed it so much and that I, I, I had to write my way back there in some ways. And then when, when I was there, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to write short stories. That was what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it or whatever, but I, I was going to do it. And I had, a, I had a manual typewriter in my room. And I would, I, I remember, and I'm, I still have this story. It's still a story. It still sucks. I, I actually, I always resurrect stories <laughs> I'm working on, you know. It still There's sucks after all these years. Uh, it's the worst. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been, it's a story about a guy in somewhere in Chicago area who, who, I think he's fighting with his wife or something. I don't know where I got all this stuff from. And he, he's, he's trapped in the mall. 
you know, that, and I was in the desert of Namibia, which is you know one of the driest places on earth, and there was no mall anywhere, you know. And so, so my imagination was still, you know, I'm, I'm often stuck where I'm, you know, in some previous part of my life, and so um, I knew that, but I, I wasn't like I was ever like consciously, oh, I'm going to write like a Namibia book. Um, it wasn't until after I got home that I was like so depressed, you know, because this whole life had been. You know, I took it, I gave it away. I, you know, I, I came home. Right. And so, um, anyway, so yeah, the book came out of, I think, out of wanting to get back. And then I had to figure out where, what the hell I'd seen. You know what I mean? And so that took a long time. Sure, sure. I and, mean, you know, and there's like, there's, yeah, it's like, it's like coming down from an enormous high when you go off and you travel and you have this, like, yeah. there's something so uh, intoxicating. I mean, not everybody likes to travel. I have friends who, they, they would be perfectly happy to never leave their hometown. And, <laughs> I don't, I can't relate to it, but I think it's, it's, I mean, it's obviously a totally defensible way to be like, I am the other, I'm in like totally opposite end of the spectrum. Like if I could, uh, travel half of every year, I'd probably do it, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I do like to come home, but I, I love to go get lost. And, uh, one thing that doesn't get talked about, cause like there's so much attention paid to like how difficult it is to adjust and to assimilate when you're in a strange territory. Right. But I, harder for me is coming home, you know, being like, yeah. oh shit, what do I do now? And like, uh, but, you know, like, and that weird feeling of like how you've changed a lot, but the place that you're returning to totally seems like the same old place. And right, nobody wants to talk. You know, they'll, they'll they'll pay lip service to your experience for a few minutes, and then it's like onto you know onto what's immediate in front of you, and in your it's very lonely. Right, exactly. Especially if you've gone and done it alone, you know. You'll be if you yeah. have like one other buddy who was there with you. You can at least right, like, right. Yeah, you, you can, can at least somebody to talk to. You can yeah. at least bore the shit out of all the rest of your friends, like with somebody <laughs> right. else. <laughs> right. Have other people come along while you guys wax nostalgic, like you know, like us talking about the Midwest and people who don't care about the Midwest. Uh, you know what I, mean? I remember I did, I did like my study abroad in college with my, a couple of buddies, and like we came back and thought we were fucking geniuses it's it's annoying in retrospect you know when you're, right. when you're a young person and like you've gone abroad you come home and you're like i you know i've seen the world <laughs> exactly you pat yourself on the back and i mean this is this is i you know what i was desperately trying not to write when i when i finally did write about it and and i i kind of set on one important principle is that how utterly useless i was pretty much the entire time i was there and that that what I'd gained, if anything, was something from the people I was with, which is just so obvious, but it took me a while to get to that point, like when I was remembering, like I wasn't a very good teacher, you know, and they, and they probably would dispute that partly, but I wasn't, I wasn't exactly bringing much, you know, I was taking a lot more, which is, you know, again, a little bit of a cliche too, you know, but it took me a while to figure that out, that I, you know, that the, kind of the driving force behind the, this book I was writing was the fact that how useless this guy really was um so anyway so okay so you get back from namibia you're sort of yeah. fla floundering and like mourning for it for yeah a long period of time and then uh, you know i'm assuming that you're and, and you had a typewriter there so you were apprenticing yeah. then but how long did yeah. you how long did you did you suck <laughs> before you got good you know what i'm saying like how long, how long was the struggle before you got to the point where you could write things that people wanted to publish God, I mean, you know, it's like I suck today. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think it's like we never get over sucking. So I mean, I just, like there was no point where I think we cross a line. I just think we just keep at it, and I think that's what I've been up to all these years. And uh, but you know, I think I, I think I just sort of. 
Well, when, when did you break? When did you break through? You know what I'm saying? Because like obviously, yeah, I feel the same way. Like I stare, yeah. I stare at the flashing cursor, and I'm just like, oh god. Yeah. And you know, but uh, what, at what point did you keep pushing and keep pushing until finally you you got something on the page that was uh, worth reading for other people? Boy, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I, you know, I think um, I had a little story about a couple fighting, and he wakes up in the night, and she's breaking the windows of the apartment. And again, this you know, this was long before I was writing about any, you know, and I was just it was a tiny little story, and uh, and he like wakes up and says, "Why are you breaking the windows?" And I can't remember what her response was, or maybe she, there was no response. And I think, I think that tiny little story was the point at which I thought, "All right, you know, I, I may not, you know, I may not, this may not be huge, but maybe this is what I can contribute." And I, there was something. People, somebody, I mean, somebody responded to it, and they published it in a, in a magazine called Another Chicago Magazine, which is still around. It's a great magazine. That was my first publication. It's called Another Chicago Magazine. It was pretty soon after I'd gotten back from Namibia. It was actually based on an incident that happened in Namibia about a kid breaking a window. So I just was thinking the image of a broken window is all in windows. I'm always talking about windows. I put put a character in front of a window for me, and I can almost get you a story somehow. Um, but anyway, I think that was the point where. Uh, a, a small moment, and I realized that maybe what I could do, and I still kind of work in this, in this, um, uh, I don't know how to say it, but, you know, I work with smaller things, and that was the time. I think I crossed some line at that point. And when you say smaller things, do you mean like shorter form, or do you mean like these small moments, or? I think both. I think I, I think I, I think my work tends to be built on on you know someone a gesture that someone does or something they don't say as opposed to something they do say silence you know i kind of and i think it started with that tiny little piece that idea um well i remember she's she's walking she's doing circles on the rug they live in a one bedroom or a studio apartment in chicago and she does laps around you know around the rug you know <laughs> anyway but you know that I realized that that tiny thing could be a story. And I think I realized that fairly early on, and that has always been some driving force in what I do, which is that don't think it has to be. And I think I've been thinking bigger, you know, and I think we always think bigger, you know. Or we think, I think, yeah, because I was just going to say, like, there's a certain uh, wisdom and there's a certain humility in that approach because I think so often, you know, especially maybe in the beginning, but certainly at later stages as well, uh, there's a kind of grandiosity and there a uh, thinking and this also like maybe insecurity uh, that makes us feel like we need to say something uh, magnificent or tell us yeah. tell a story about you know that just like explodes off the page and has all these pyrotechnics involved and the truth is that these small tiny little details are often a lot more gripping if you can hold your focus on them. Totally, and and you know I mean I'm just like. And as you were talking, you said these gripping. I, I there's a soccer field out my window too, which is brand new. And I was just watching the guy kicked it and hit the hit the building, <laughs> and then the other guy kind of like pretended that he he like kind of like jumped up and fell, like as if, if he'd been shot or something, because he because he'd missed the shot and hit the building. You know, I can't even describe it that well, but like a little thing like that, it's just like and I thought, oh, this is kind of a beautiful thing, right? You know, so I'm always kind of thinking, how can I? 
describe that. But yeah, the impulse always is to like go bigger and, you know, and God knows if I could do it, I would, you know, and maybe one day I'll have this, uh, you know, Tolstoyan type of, type of novel, um, <laughs> you know, but, but I, for the moment, I'm sort of extremely interested in how you, um, how you can, uh, zero in on something that's sort of really hard to say. And I think that's kind of what I'm usually after. The negative space. Yeah, and totally. Okay, and so, and then I I think this is a good time to bring up compression because uh, I feel like it's sort of, uh, you know, synchronous, you know, like the style that you employ to drill down into these small moments is one of great compression. A lot of your stories, uh, in particular in uh, in this most recent book, uh, are like a paragraph long, a page long, a page and a half long. They're very short, but yet they hold a lot. And I know, having tried to do this, how difficult it is to get there. So, uh, you know, how, like, first of all, how do you do it? <laughs> like how many drafts are you going through or do these things come to you, you know, pretty quickly, you know, after lots and lots of like rumination, like what's the, what's the process like for you? I think it's a lot of rumination and a lot of drafts and I'm not a lot of words. I wish one, you know, I wish I had a lot of words to work with and, and often, and sometimes I do cut a great deal. You know, so some of these stories that are a page and a half long will have started at 10 sometimes, and that, that happens frequently. But also, just as frequently, I can only get the page. I can only, one thing, I'll, you know, I'll be sort of obsessed with something as a story, and I'll, I'll desperately want it to just, I, I want it to be longer, but I just can't, there's nothing more to say. And, uh, yeah, but see, but and see, if I can get power from that, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. And, and, and I can also tell you that there's hundreds of these that never see the light of day because they don't do anything. Interesting. Well, I mean, and, I was just going to say, like, I, I think knowing that, you know, because I think writers of less, lesser confidence or lesser good instinct, uh, whatever you want to call it, would force the issue. And like, you can, you can fuck up a story that way. You know, it's like sometimes I, all you need is a paragraph and you have to know when to step away from the the page yeah and i mean and we never know for sure because a lot of great things have happened the opposite way right so you know we just don't know how you know there's no way to know except you know i will i will sometimes take the power rather than dissipate it but if i can if i can get it in three i'll do it in three if i can get it in ten i will you know it just it's sort of and there's no you know it's kind of no way to track it except to i'll sort of you know, I kind of, if I reread something like 10, 20 times, 50 times, and you read it once and it has some impact on you, then I feel like I've done my job. Right. Right. Well, it's hard. I mean, yeah, like I said, it's, it's really, really hard to do. And it's hard to write a, sh- a good short story, period. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the first rule. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. just fucking hard. It's you know? really hard, but it's like, you know, I'm a big fan of compression. Um, mm-hmm. Not that it's the only style I can read, you know, like I can read all sorts of different stuff, but I, I admire people who are able to get great power out of as few words as possible. Like there's something about that achievement that strikes me as being really uh, difficult. And it also seems like, I mean, I think of poetry and I think of, right. I don't know, the purpose of like really powerful communication is to say the most with the least, I mean, as opposed right. to saying the least with the most. I mean, that's the game, right? So right. Right. I feel like sometimes that gets lost and I feel like people who have really powerful minds can sometimes be 
um, enamored of that. Like I, and I have also taught and maybe you can speak to teaching as well because I think the game is the same in teaching. Like people who are really good teachers, uh, speak with great economy of language. I find. And I think a lot of times teachers can love the sound of their own voice. <laughs> totally. And, and I, you know, I'm guilty of that. I know it's, well, it's, it's, that's the thing. I mean, especially when you're speaking extemporaneously in front of a room full of people, it can be really easy to wind. And so like, I remember I could, you know, I can remember walking out of lectures where I felt like I got it. I was like, okay, I didn't bore the <laughs> shit out of them. And like, right. I, I didn't like ramble, you know, and that's, that was always the mission. And it was very similar when I, it's very similar when I sit down to write, you know? Yeah, and I—it's I, funny how you know because it's like you're—I'm like I'm harder on myself on the page than I ever am when I'm talking. You know what I mean? And 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 God knows we should all. I mean, you're talking tell, about dude, economy of language. Tell me you know, about it's it. Like man. so key. You know what I mean? Just shut up dude. and let the silence do something. But I always fuck that up when I'm in a conversation. Well, you're talking. And in class. You're talking to a guy who does a podcast. Like I, <laughs> right. I have to listen. I have to listen. But this I, is a different kind of podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. But it's like. Like, you know, every time I have a conversation or almost every time, like there's a similar pattern that gets followed, which I don't think I've ever discussed, but I'll talk to somebody and then it, and it usually goes well. And it's always like a positive experience. And then like, you know, usually immediately after, or within like 24 hours, I will send a thank you, or we'll have an email exchange and they'll be like, I'm probably not going to listen to it. I have no idea what I fucking said. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And what I always say to soothe pe- what I always say to soothe people is I'm like, listen, you know, there's no possible way you can make a bigger ass of yourself on on my show than I do. You know. <laughs> so hopefully that's like you know some small measure of. Uh, <laughs> it is, but it's also like you know, I mean, nobody ever admits this, and it's you know, but I mean, to have an actual conversation is a rare thing in any context, right? Right. Like to have an actual. You know, and so I, I I think it's pretty remarkable if you can if you acknowledge it and then you know, okay so we got that problem now what <laughs> you know what I mean right. now we talk you know I, I find it so. I, I that's why I mean I think that's uh, not to get like too meta about like the podcast but like I think that's why I do it partially and I've talked about this before a little bit is that part of it is a, a response to like the two dimensional you know two dimensional uh, social media computer screen world that we right. live in and wanting to have right. some sort of like actual exchange that goes beyond like a tweet. And uh, people are desperate for it. And yeah. And I think that too, I listen to these things and draw great comfort in much the same way. Like I think there's something literary about conversation and, and I think you've worked in oral history. You've done oral history uh, mm-hmm. stuff as well. Yeah. And I, I think I read something you were saying about, um, how interesting it is to hear people tell their stories, like verbalize their stories with all the, with all the flaws that come along with that. And I think for writers, writers, it can be difficult because we're so accustomed to having full control, you know, and, and having the, the power of revision. And, you know, when you're in a conversation, you have to be willing to accept the mess. Um, but right. And, and with writing comes all this like pressure to do it, you know, pressure on ourselves, self-criticism, but maybe in conversation, we don't do that as much. You know what I mean? We're willing, like you said, to be a little, you know, we, we did, unless it's recorded, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right, and edited. Yes, and, right. you know. But if you have like, the, I mean, I, you know, I've gotten better at not being too. I mean, I can listen to playback and just sort of like accept. But uh, you know, some there, there are some cringeworthy moments where you're like, God, I'm such an. Do asshole. you go back and listen to your podcast? I, you know, for the first like a hundred episodes, I listened to every single one because I needed. To right. get, I felt like I needed to get you better. Need to get, right. Uh, and then it's sort of it's sort of tailed off, and I have a sense of when. 
you know, I don't know. It's like, I kind of know when I'm fucking it up in the moment now, right? <laughs> which is maybe, which is right. maybe worse. And you don't need to go back and review that. Right. You know it already. So, so yeah. yeah. So that's just, you know, that's my life twice right. a week, but right. uh, hopefully people are enjoying I, it. I have a lot of trouble listening to my own voice. Uh, it's funny. Like I can listen to my own voice when I'm talking, but I can't listen to an interview. I yeah. just can't. Yeah, no. And, and you know what? I, there's no need. We, we're having the conversation now, so we don't need to listen. <laughs> right. This is for other people, <laughs> which right. is the name of the show. Um, right. So, okay. So let's talk about how you work. Uh, like, like, what's your level of discipline? Because you often work in short form and because you're working, I, mean, I guess it's like it's misleading. Like you work in these really short, short stories a lot of the time, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't spend a shitload of time on them. So. Like, yeah. are, are yeah. you, are you an everyday, like at 5am, like monastic with your cup of coffee writer, or is it like, you know, three days a week when you can get to it and you have these like manic fits of productivity? I think I'm both of those. Like, and it depends on when, you know what I mean? I like to think I'm the first and I'm definitely the second, you know, right. but I, I have to have the coffee. And if I start at six when it's quiet, then I'm, 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 I'm go, you know, things are, things might happen. Um, but you know, like I've, I'm fighting for the discipline. It also depends on where you are in a book. You know what I mean? So sure. now with a book, a new book out, I'm kind of distracted more than I wish I was. You know, I want to get back into that space where there's just a blankness, you know, but it feels like for right now it's not blank. Well, I think, I think this is something that, uh, and I've had writers say similar things on this show. And like when, when you have a book out, I think it's probably healthy just to like block out a month for this sort of stuff. Yeah. You just, I mean, yeah. you know, cause like, True trying to write against that you're just going to drive yourself crazy and you know this is part of the job you have to go out and let try to let people know that the book exists there's you know right. you're trying you're, right and, and it's fun because you do get to you do get to talk about what you do which is always interesting to you anyway <laughs> you know what i mean and also like it does it does give a sense of like this isn't a total void you know what i mean like this is there is something there's somebody you know, at the other it, end it, yeah, and, and and even if it's just one person, and that's you know what you know, I read this um, beautiful essay last night by if I can find the book somewhere here. I think I brought it with me um, by a Spanish writer. He talked about he talks about the point of all of this is to be reread, and we can't possibly know that part. Like you can't gauge that. You just have to trust that one day it's not about being read; it's about being reread. And I thought that like, that is you know like that and how you know it's like it calmed me down i'm like no you know okay so this month or you know next couple months yeah i'm tense and i'm worried about being read but i can't possibly determine the reread reread part and that that i just got to give way and he says that this is the real um you know the real point of of this Enterprise. Well, and it's like, like you think about the you think about the books that you've reread. So that's an, that's a good question to ask. Like, yeah. I, I think every writer and every really book bookish person has that stack of books that just absolutely blew them away, and they keep them on their nightstand or they're on their desk, almost like desk references. I mean, I know that's the way it is for me with some, yeah. of, some of my favorites. But what are some books that really just? Comp- but I mean, sorry, but how often do we not talk about that? In you know in the context of a new book out or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, it just really, like, it gave me this idea, like, think about that. Like, you know, so, so yeah, Virginia Woolf, you know, To the Lighthouse. How many times have I read it? Isaac Babel. How many times have I read it? Uh, my friend Junts Kim, who's a fellow writer, has come in and out of my office. Junts Kim, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I'll, we'll have coffee in a little bit. Sorry. 
Um, uh, he well, sometimes he uses my office as a, because he doesn't want to go upstairs to his. <laughs> anyway, um, so but uh, you know, I, yeah. So Isaac Babel, Eudora Welty. You know, is there any is there, is there any Hemingway since you're a Chicago guy? Like, did that factor into your childhood reading or any kind of your like? I, yeah, I mean, I've reread like in another country, you know, countless times. The stories more than I've always wanted to. You know, I've read. I'm sure I've read Sun Also Rises a few times now, but I, I've, always, I've lately I've been wanting to go back to it just because I remember the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and Hemingway gets so, you know, I don't know. I mean, does he still get trashed? I mean, at this point, it's, like, boring to talk about him positive, but we're negatively. He just is, and he's pivotal. Right. And, you know, but Faulkner, for me, is the... Just because he's... Because I'm still surprised. I'm reading um, As Only Dying as we speak. Not as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> After we get off the phone. Right. And, uh, and I'm just stunned by it. And I don't think I would be stunned by Hemingway. You know, I'm stunned when I reread Wealthy. I can't believe what she does in Golden Apples, for instance. You know, so, um, so anyway, so this is, yeah, and, and you know, and, and do they know, were they conscious of this reread ability-ness? Probably not, but they were trying to make something that lasted, and I think to make something that lasted, you can't worry if, um, and partly this is self-protective, right? I mean, I won't have, you know, I'm not worried about having readers because I'm worried about having re-readers. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. But, you know, in a sense, the, I, I got the guy's name, if it's interesting. I don't know who he is, really. Juan Goy Tisolo, a Spanish writer born in 1931. Um, this publisher, Sun and Moon Classics, out of Los Angeles, I believe, uh, publishes him. And he, uh, and he talks about this idea. You know, and I think he obviously doesn't have a lot of readers himself. So, well, but you know, like speaking about communication and speaking about, you know, what it means and how to do it well, and I, I think this is kind of the culmination of it. You know, from a literary perspective, anyway, is that you know when you're writing a, a short story or you're writing a novel or you're writing a memoir, whatever it is that you're writing, and it comes out in book form, mm-hmm. you're trying to talk to people. And that's yes. the great paradox of being a writer is that you spend all sorts of time alone in a room with your right. with yourself in a desperate attempt to connect with other people. And you, know, you can do it. Why aren't we out there connecting with people? That is what I, yeah. um, you know, I always want to know, but it's weird. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I think that, you know, if somebody reads you and really enjoys the book, that's great. But if somebody rereads you. Yeah. Uh, and then passes it along, you know, that, that's somebody who, for whom the message has really connected. And yeah. I think that's what he's saying. And it's, it's a stronger form of currency in terms of keeping the work alive. You know, like yeah. I think, uh, you know, let's, let me put it this way. I think having 10,000 readers is wonderful, but if you have 1000 readers who reread and pass the book along and keep it on the shelf for years and years and years and talk about it, uh, that could ultimately be more valuable in, in terms of like sustaining a readership or sustaining the life of a work. I mean, it seems to make sense to me. Yeah, listen to what this guy says. He says, it came, a young man came up to me and said, I've read your last novel and really liked it. This is what the writer says. I mean, what the balls to say is, have you reread it? The writer asked. <laughs> no, he said. In that case, the writer says back, you're a bad reader or I've written a bad novel. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's taking it to extreme, but um, but it, you know that just I, I think it it does. When I do hear that somebody 
feels that strongly, you know, which has happened a few times. That, that of course, is the... Um, but I just didn't, like, quantify it until, like, last time. I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is, this is the goal. Well, and you, but you've, you've had really good success critically, you know? Like, I think you've had, like, the kind of success and response to your work critically that most writers dream of. And I think the sense out there, um, based on what I've been able to gather, is that it's just a matter of time. I don't know. I, I'm optimistic. Yeah, and I, you know, and I'm not. I have no. I have no complaints. Um, uh, you know about. You know, I mean, I feel grateful that the strange because I feel like what I do is a little different. That I've been able to do it for this long, I feel grateful, and uh, so I have no. You know, I mean, we all. You know, writers get together, writers, and we'll bitch about. You know, our readership or whatever. But I, you know, I feel like uh, it's actually your your, your your re-readership is the <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly. And so I think you know, um, but I'm going to try now to think about that after I press. <laughs> so, anyway. so what about what about criticism? What about reading reviews? Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's awesome to get a great review, and it's fun to read yeah. those. Like, do you do you read all the reviews, or do you try to stay away from it? As much as I'd love to stay away from them, it's hard because they're coming at you. You know, somebody sends you an email attachment with a review. It's kind of hard. <laughs> it's hard not to click. You yeah, know. Sure. So um, I'd love to be in a void. And I and I stay. I'm not actually. We just moved to the country when I. I mean, we call it the country. It's Bolinas, California. It's about an hour and uh, half from uh, San Francisco. And we don't have Wi-Fi anymore, which is great. Really? Um, like to get to get internet, I have to like plug in the DSL, which is often a big fight in the house. So um, because you know uh, it's always in use, and so I'm, I've been off. I've been sort of off the grid a little bit the last year, which has been nice. Why? Why? I mean, like, from, I mean, just the move. The move. I'm assuming it's just like the kid yeah. getting out of the city easier. Yeah, to- yeah, that and just just concentration. You know, and like, I mean, I love the city and I love what's going on and I love to walk it. And, you know, I'm here right now. I work here. But um, but just to get a little peace from not just from the city itself, but from, I don't know, the speed in which I felt like I was living. Um, and, you know, I mean, again, it's a cliche. We, we head to the, you know, the farm or whatever to, to, you know, try and slow things down. But I feel like that's what I've been trying to do. So, um I and just in terms of re-reading re, re, uh, reviews and things like that, it's harder for me to get them now. So that's good. That's good. Um, but yeah, I read them, and you know, I mean, I, you know, I had a review the other day that you know was quite positive in some ways, and then kind of slammed me a little bit. Um, and it, you know, that it, it it can you know you always think about the negative, right? You know, the positive stuff goes right by you, and you think like this guy, uh, you know, doesn't get me at all. And, uh, you know, so that you want to fight back. But but the thing about me is that, like, if somebody says something positive about uh, anything I've done, I like, I mean, it's nice to hear. And then it just kind of like washes over me or goes in one ear and out the other. And then if somebody says something negative, I always believe that it's true. Yeah, totally. Yeah, (laughs) completely. I'm like, they they got me. Like, they they know, they see through me. Like, it's, I I always agree with my my worst critic, I totally agree with every time. My mother told me, and she denies saying this, so I, maybe she didn't. But she's, you know, don't believe your, don't believe the positive stuff, and don't believe the negative stuff, and right. then you're set. That's but don't, you know, don't pick one. Certainly, don't pick the positive stuff over the negative stuff, which is what we, most of the time we want to do and do. But you know, just let it, and and look and wait for the thoughtful comments, you know, which are come, which come. It just takes more time. 
Right. From the rereaders. Those are the people who give you your From notes. the rereaders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, listen, man, it's been really fun talking with you, and I congratulate you on uh, on the new book, all the, all of your success. And, Thank uh, you, Brett. I hope we cross paths at some point, and I wish, I, you, I, I wish you luck going forward. Thank you. I, I really hope so. It's been a pleasure and such a different experience as I know you hear often about this podcast. But, um, but uh, you know, to experience it and to actually talk to somebody that I haven't met in this kind of intimate way is really nice. So thank you. All right, guys, there you have it. That is Peter Orner. Go get his new story collection. It's called Last Car Over the Sagamore Bridge, and it's available now from the, uh, the folks at Little Brown and Company. You can find Peter online at peterorner.net. Uh, he's on the Twitter, where his handle is at Peter underscore Orner, and you can find him on Facebook, too. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com, and don't forget to go get the app if you haven't done that, the free Other People app. It's the official app of this podcast, and it's the best and most elegant way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes, and you can access the full archives and premium content as well, all via the app. So please go get it. Uh, the app itself is free. Okay. Uh, thanks to Max Millwood for listening and reviewing every single episode. I'm honestly flattered and uh, appreciative. Even like, even when someone hates what I do, uh, I'm, I'm uh, amazed that anyone's paying attention at all. And uh, I'm grateful for it. Uh, and the fact that Max feels strongly, uh, you know, I'd rather have that than have people yawning, which I'm sure has happened before <laughs> and might be happening right now. Please remember that Rambo died in Marseille and that Scribner's let the great Gatsby go out of print not long after F. Scott Fitzgerald died. That is it for now. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks to uh, Peter Orner. Once again, go get his book. I'll be back in a few days with another uh, improvisational, unscripted conversation with another writerly individual, and hopefully I won't fuck it up. If you want to email me to let me know your thoughts or to uh, unleash your anger or to express your grave disappointment, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And uh, don't forget, if you would prefer to leave a voicemail, you can do that now. Just go to the show's official website, otherpeoplepod.com, and, uh, you know, pour your heart out. Okay. Say what you need to say. Uh, I can take it. I think I can take it. Please be gentle. (laughs) 